My name is Trevor. I live in Austin. Um, I used to serve with the Christian Students on Campus Club at UT Austin. I did that for three years. Uh, the Lord kind of rearranged my life a little bit, and he led me to go and pursue what I studied in college, which is geotechnical engineering, and I've been doing that a little bit more than a year now. But I'm really happy to be with you guys this morning. You know, there's a pretty big event going on in Austin right now. I don't know if you guys were aware. It's the big F1 race this weekend. People have come over all over the world. they got some famous singers singing tonight. But that gathering out there doesn't compare to this gathering this morning. Out of all the gatherings in Austin that are taking place this morning, this is the place to be, and thank the Lord we are here. Amen. So um, I really need you guys to lock in this morning as best as possible because we have a lot of ground to cover. I need you to just focus, all right, and help me give this message. I need you guys this morning, okay? And also, I want to encourage everybody, if you can, grab a pen, grab a pencil, and please take notes. The palest ink is better than the best memory. You write something down on paper, that will last longer than it being just in your mind, and you trying to remember that. So highly encourage note-taking in this message and throughout the whole weekend. So thank y'all so much for coming. I, I want to start off with a little introduction here, okay? You know, the message is on pursuing Christ. And I want you guys to ask yourself, what am I pursuing? What am I pursuing in my life? What have I pursued in my life? What am I pursuing right now in college? And I'm not just talking about pursuits on a surface level. Like, for example, you know, you guys as college students, you're in college to pursue a, exactly, as a geotechnical engineer, I'm pursuing my license as a professional engineer. I'm doing that. I kind of have to do that. You as a college student kind of have to do that. I'm pursuing certain relationships. You're probably pursuing certain relationships. You're probably pursuing certain skills that you want to acquire to be a contributing member to society. That's great, but that's all kind of surfacy and kind of the responsibility of a person who wants to live a normal human life. The pursuit that I'm talking about is, okay, let's open up our chest, look into our heart, and what are we pursuing in here? It's like, what do I have gas in my tank for that when I think about pursuing, it's like, boom, the RPM start revving. You know, if you ever talk to these people, and like, they're super chill and super lackadaisical, but when you bring up the topic that they're pursuing, like college football, like a, a lucrative career in the medical field, they, they're all chill, and then you bring it up, and they're like, they become a different person, and then they just start talking, and they're so focused, and they're so passionate about it. Why? It's because in their heart, that's what that, they have gas in the tank for. And then once you hit that, it's like, oh, the RPMs start revving. And then you realize, deep at this, within this person's heart, that is what they are pursuing. So I want you to consider that this morning, okay? Deep in here, what am I pursuing? And I hope this weekend... The Lord will have a way to work within all of us to really do the impossible, which is to stir us up to pursue Him. Now, another thing I want you to consider, as believers in Christ, we're all destined to appear before the Lord at what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And what the Lord is going to do, He's going to x-ray us, and He's going to see everything that we are, everything that we've accomplished, everything that we've gained in our time on the earth, and he's going to give us a righteous evaluation of all those things. And then he's going to determine whether or not what we pursued in order to gain was worthy of him giving us the thumbs up or not. So I want you to have that in your mind as well, is that all of us as believers in Christ are destined for such an evaluation. And when we come to that evaluation point, at the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ x-rays us, will what we have pursued and gained throughout our life, throughout our God-given time on earth, will Christ, when he looks at it, 
consider it as valuable? Will Christ consider it as pursuit worthy? We want to, when that day comes, we want the Lord to approve of what we've gained throughout our entire life. And what we gain comes from all the things that we pursue throughout our life. And the Bible reveals, my brothers and sisters, that the most precious thing that we can pursue and gain is Christ himself. So may we be such pursuing persons. You know, there's a verse in Romans. It's Romans 3.11. It says, There is none who seeks out God. There is none, zero, who seeks out God. This is where we all start. Sometimes it's easy to just get in your head and just be like, this person pursues the Lord at this level, and this person pursues the Lord at this intensity. But the reality of the situation is that within ourself, in our natural constitution, there's no element of pursuing God in us. So we all start at the same playing field. That's why our pursuing has to start with Christ. It doesn't start with ourselves because there is none who seeks out God. That's why we have to have last night's message on seeing Christ because our pursuing of Christ starts with our seeing of Christ. It starts with Him. And our pursuing power comes from His drawing power. So that's why I don't want you to be discouraged this morning when if you consider yourselves like, I, I, I don't really pursue that much. That's okay because who we are naturally in our constitution, our very makeup, there's not one fiber in us that seeks after God. But we have this marvelous Christ who we began seeing last night to see a vision of Christ so that he is the most attractive one. He is the immense magnet would draw us and his drawing power would be our pursuing power. You with me on that? Excellent. Okay. So now we come to pursuing Christ. The first point here is by knowing and loving him. Philippians 3.10a, this is Paul writing. It says, to know him. To know him, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to write down some verses. Write down Acts 9.5. And then you have Philippians 3.10a there. And then you have 2 Timothy 1.12. Acts 9.5, Philippians 3.10, and 2 Timothy 1.12. These verses show us that Paul's journey in the Christian life was a journey of getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Not getting to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference. It's easy to get to know somebody. Today, all you got to do is Wikipedia them. It's crazy. My little brother has a Wikipedia page. It's crazy. If you want to look up Steel Walker, you can know about Steel Walker. But if you read that page, will you really know him? You'll just know about him. Paul's life's journey was to know the living person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts 9-5, this was his conversion on the road to Damascus. And he asked the Lord a question. He said, who are you, Lord? And that question set Paul on a trajectory of knowing Christ throughout his whole Christian life. And then you come to Philippians 3.10. We see Paul still having this aspiration within him to know him. And then 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says at the end of his life, right before he's about to get martyred, he says, I know whom I have believed. So Paul's a pattern for us in this regard as a person who was on a journey to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Okay, moving on to Luke 5, 8. Can we read that all together? Ready, go. Okay, underline, depart from me. So the context here is that the Lord just performed a miracle. He told Peter and some of his fishermen buddies to push out into the water, cast a net, and Peter's like, we've been doing this all night, Lord, and we didn't catch anything. Even though we're expert fishermen, you know, we know what we're doing. But the Lord told him to push out, cast a net, and then they caught a boatload of fish that they had to get the help pulling in. So that's the context of this verse. And then Peter, when he saw this, 
the miracle that the Lord did. He falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. See, Peter knew something about himself. He knew he was sinful, but he didn't know that much of the Lord because he said, Depart from me. He knew something about the Lord as, as a, a miracle worker and probably somebody that's pretty holy. So I'm sinful, you're holy, depart from me. But he didn't see Christ for who he really was as the immense magnet, as the invaluable treasure, or there's no way he would have said, depart from me, Lord. So he didn't really know the Lord like he did later on, which we're about to see. Mark 16, 7. We're still looking at Peter here again. It says, but go... Tell his disciples and Peter, you got to underline and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him even as he told you. So this is the day of the Lord's resurrection. An angel is speaking to Mary the Magdalene. And angels, remember, are messengers of the Lord. So they're not speaking in and of themselves. They're carrying messages from the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking through an angel. His his message to Mary on the day of the Lord's resurrection. He says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, even as he told you. And this word, and Peter, is something very precious. Very particular that this phrase is included in this verse right here. Because you have to remember what Peter did. Three days ago, he denies the Lord three times. Two of those denials were to a little maidservant girl, okay? Not very intimidating, but Peter was shrinking back and abandoning the Lord that he was even intimidated by this little maidservant girl, denies the Lord to this little girl twice, and then the third time, he denies him to a group of people, and he actually denies the Lord with cursing and swearing, okay? Peter didn't have a very clean mouth in this moment, and right when Peter did that, denying the Lord the third time, the Lord had worked it out, or right when he denied him, Peter and the Lord's gaze met. They made eye contact. And Peter, we have to believe that he remembered the Lord's word in Matthew 10, 33. Because after he met the Lord's gaze, he went away and wept bitterly. And in Matthew 10, 33, the Lord is speaking to his disciples and says, If you deny me before men... I will deny you before my Father who is in the heavens. Y'all catch that? That's what the Lord said. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in the heavens. This word became very real to Peter in this moment. So he thought he was down and out for the count. But here's the Lord on the day of resurrection. Send a, mess, send a message. Go tell my disciples and Peter, and Peter. Yes, I know Peter thinks he's down and out for the count, but he's not down and out in the count in my books. This little word, and Peter, opened up a vista to Peter of who the Lord is, as the merciful one, as the one who will not forsake him, as the one who's so kind and loving, as the one who's forgiving. And we see what happened. The Lord restored Peter, and Peter functioned in a marvelous way for the uh, building up of the church in Acts. So, and Peter. And then John 27, what it says, Then that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Therefore, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment around himself, for he was naked, and he threw himself into the sea. Quite a different reaction from, Depart from me, Lord. At the beginning, you know, of Peter's interaction with the Lord. He throws himself in the sea, into the sea to get to the Lord. So he saw something of the Lord's preciousness. And then in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter's writing to the believers. And, and you have to remember, Peter's able to write these words because they are Peter's reality. Peter's experiencing what he's writing, and he's conveying his experience to the believers. So he says, Whom having not seen, you love. That's the Lord Jesus. You've got to underline, you love. And to whom, though not seeing him at present, yet believing, you exult with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Quite a different Peter from initially, depart from me, Lord. He treasured the Lord. He loved the Lord to the uttermost. Loved the Lord with exaltation, joy, and glory. 
Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, who formerly was a blasphemer, underline that, and a persecutor, underline that, and an insulting person, underline that. That's what Paul, um, that's how he summarized himself before his conversion to, the, to believe in the Lord. Not very good, right? But I was shown mercy because being ignorant, I acted in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord superabounded with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Say grace of our Lord. Say grace of our Lord. Say superabounded. Say superabounded. Say with faith and love. Say faith and love. Did I tell you all to underline faith and love? I can't remember. Okay, underline faith and love. That's important. So Paul's resume before he met the Lord, from what he considered, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insulting person. But he said the Lord had mercy on him, and the grace of the Lord superabounded, and look what it's accompanied with. Look what it's tied to. Faith and love in Christ Jesus. Faith here is Paul's believing into the Lord to receive him. Okay? That's how we receive the Lord. We believe into him, and then we receive him. But Paul didn't just say grace superabounded with faith in Christ Jesus. He says with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Remember, we're on the point of pursuing Christ by knowing and loving him. Paul puts faith and love together. Why? Because Paul knew that Christ just didn't want him to receive him, but Paul knew that Christ wanted Paul to love him and thereby enjoy him. You know, it's like this. Can I use you for an example here real quick, please? Yeah, yeah, just right here. Isaac, my man. So if I wanted to give you my cell phone, all right, as a present, okay, and I extend it to you, what do you have to do? Okay, and then in reaching for it, what are you doing? Yeah, you're accepting it. You're receiving it, right? But what if, you know, after receiving my cell phone, it just, it goes on your shelf in your room and just collects dust. And you don't enjoy the cell phone. You don't love the cell phone. You don't dive in and experience all the functions of the cell phone. It's just collecting dust in your room. How do you think I'm going to feel when I come over to your house? Like, hey, man, are you enjoying the gift that I gave you? And I come in your room and, like, I see, like, a thick, thick particles of dust just collecting on your bookshelf. I'm like, how am I going to feel as the gift giver? I am going to be offended, man. It's like, dude, I want you to enjoy my, my gift to you. Love my gift. Experience it. Get wrapped up in it, man. Because that's the reason why I gave it to you. Thank you for receiving it, but love it and enjoy it. Okay, thanks, man. John 3.16. John 3.16. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so gave the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes into him would not perish but have eternal life. God gave so that we would have. Say God gave. Say God gave. Say that so we would have. So that we would have. Hey, God gives so that we would have. Have eternal life to do what with it? First of all, I need to make a clarification here. That eternal life is not an infinite state of existence. That's not what God is talking about here. He gave his only begotten son that we would have his son as the eternal life. The eternal life there is a person. You look at 1 John 5, 12. John says, he who has the son has the life. So the eternal life there in John three sixteen is personal because it's a person. And God gave us his only begotten son that we would have his son as eternal life not that we would just receive him and put him on the bookshelf so that he would collect dust. Unfortunately, there's a lot of believers that that's their experience. 
They have their initial experience of salvation where they receive the Lord. But what are they doing with the Lord after that? Well, the Lord, God the Father, gave us his Son so that we would have eternal life, so that we would receive him and love him to enjoy him. You got that? Receive him, to love him, to enjoy him. Okay? And we see this in John chapter 3 because in the middle of John 3, that's where we have verse 16. God gave so that we would have. At the end of John 3, we have the bride with the bridegroom. The bride is the Lord Jesus Christ. The bridegroom is the church. The church is composed of all those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as eternal life. But the way we become the bridegroom in this age is that not only we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, but we love the Lord Jesus Christ to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ, to become the bride so that we, so that the bridegroom can have his lovely bride. That's how John 3, that's how it ends. So we see even there, God gave to us his son so that we would have eternal life, so that we would enjoy him and love him as the bride with the bridegroom. So going back to 1 Timothy 1.12, you see grace, it superabounds with faith and love. If you want grace to superabound in your experience, raise your hand if you want that to happen. I do. And when we say grace of the Lord, we're talking about the experience and enjoyment of the Lord. Okay? If you want that to superabound in your experience, oh, you have to receive and love him. A lot of times, I think, brothers and sisters, we minimize loving the Lord. We can't minimize loving the Lord. Only loving the Lord can keep us in a proper relationship with Him. We need to love the Lord with our best love. We need to be the Lord Jesus, I love you people. Do you want to be characterized as such a person? I do. I want to be the Lord Jesus, I love you believer. Can we all say it together? Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Don't minimize this small phrase, okay? This, this phrase is colossal. Loving the Lord is a colossal matter in the Bible. You know, there's a hymn that was written a long time ago by somebody in the early church. It says, Whatever, whatever thou pursuest, man, thou dost become. Dust if dust... God, if God. Sorry, I think I misquoted that a little bit. Whatever thou lovest, man. Whatever thou lovest, thou must become. Dust, if dust, if you love dust, you become dust. If you love God, you become God. In life and nature, but not in the Godhead. Loving the Lord is huge. So we need to be the I, Lord Jesus, I love you people. And God gave us a heart as the loving organ. That's why we have a heart, brothers and sisters, so that we would love the Lord. And it's easy to get down on yourself because this world, all that it's trying to do is make our heart cold, make it hard, make it occupied and turned away from the Lord. And I think sometimes, I know I've thought of this before, is that I, if I don't feel like I love the Lord, I can't tell the Lord that I love him because I'm not being genuine. You have to take that thought and cast it in the trash can. Because James, James says, the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. Something so small directs the whole vessel. So if we learn to use this, our, our tongue will be followed by our heart. So if we learn to be verbal with the Lord, Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Even though I don't feel like it, I'm going to say it. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. And the Lord will have a way to melt the ice in the heart. To soften the compacted soil of our heart. To remove the rocks that occupy our heart. And next thing we know, we've entered a sweet, loving, tender relationship with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's not minimize loving the Lord. Let's be the Lord Jesus, I love you people. And in doing this, grace will superabound in our lives. And we will be people full of joy, full of happiness, full of meaning, and we will be motivated and invigorated to pursue the Lord even more. Okay, moving on to the next point. Pursuing Christ by yearning for Him. Song of Songs 1-2-A. 
says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. We've got to say that together. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I think for time's sake, I've got to move quickly here, but, but I want you guys sometime today, before the conference is over, pray this verse to the Lord. Tell the Lord, Lord Jesus, kiss me. Lord Jesus, kiss me. The seeker here, which represents us as believers, that's who's speaking in Song of Songs 1-2-A, she's not satisfied with a general relationship with Solomon, who typifies Christ. So we're the loving seeker, Solomon is Christ. She's not satisfied with a general relationship. Say not satisfied. Not satisfied. Say not satisfied. Not satisfied. We need to be not satisfied with a general relationship with the Lord. We need to go from general with the Lord to personal with the Lord, to intimate with the Lord, to affectionate with the Lord. You know, the seeker says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You can only kiss one person at a time. You know, I, I was, it, it, it's a personal act. Actually, is my wife here? Okay, well, one of my favorite things is that on Saturday mornings, usually she, ha- she wakes up a little earlier than me. We have a five-month-old, and she brings a little five-month-old. I'll show you pictures if you guys want to see after the meeting. He's absolutely adorable. She brings him in, and, it happens, and ha- this happened this morning. My alarm had just gone off, and she puts him on the bed, and he's just absolutely adorable. He's so smiley, so sweet. And I was thinking about the message, and I was like, I'm going to kiss my son. So I do, so I lean in, I kiss his big fat cheek, and I'm thinking, while I'm doing that, is it possible to kiss my wife at the same time while I'm doing this? <laughs> There's no way. There's no, I know I kind of got big lips, but there, there, there's no way. There's no way. A kiss is only reserved for one person at a time. So the song of songs, the seeker here, wants a personal, intimate, and affectionate relationship with the Lord. Not satisfied with the general. So may we be such persons. Okay? Don't forget to pray that verse sometime this weekend and tell the Lord. All right? Now, moving on to John 20. Okay? This is an example of someone who's not satisfied until they get a personal interaction with the Lord. Okay? I'm going to read these verses. I've got to go fast through here um, to get to my next point. But y'all just follow along with me, please. Okay? <clears throat> Sorry, let me get a drink of water here before I start reading. Okay, John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary the Magdalene came early to the tomb. Underline that. You think she's for real about pursuing the Lord? About yearning after him? Came early. While it was yet dark, and saw the stone taken away from the tomb. She ran, therefore, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth, as well as the other disciple, and came to the tomb. And the two ran together, yet the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came first to the tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. Underline that. He saw the linen clothes lying there. Then Simon Peter also came following him and entered into the tomb, and he beheld the linen clothes lying there, underline that, and the handkerchief, underline handkerchief, which had been over his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in one place apart, underline folded up. And at that time, therefore, the other disciple also, who came first to the tomb, entered, and he saw and believed, underline he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he had to rise from among the dead. The disciples therefore went away again to their own home. Underline went away in their own home. What do we get from these two brothers, Peter and John? That they were satisfied with the objective facts of the Lord and his resurrection. But did they get him? They saw the linen clothes lying there. Fact number one, fact number one, okay? They beheld the linen clothes lying there, okay, same fact. The handkerchief folded up in one place apart, fact number two. 
okay, we got the facts. The Lord's resurrected. We see and believe. Now we're going to go home. It's like, what? What are they doing? Their Lord is raised. Why did they go home? Because they were satisfied with the facts. Not with the person. But we begin a contrast in verse 11. But Mary stood. The two bros went home, but Mary stood. you got to circle that. Stood outside at the tomb weeping. Then as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's not even phased by the appearance of two angels speaking to her. What does that indicate about what's going on inside? Oh, she's dialed in. Oh, she's yearning. Oh, her heart is burning for the Lord. Her environment did not shake her in her yearning and pursuit of Christ. What about us, brothers and sisters? Does our environment sometimes shake us, distract us from pursuing the Lord? We have a pattern in Mary unshakable and immovable in her yearning for the Lord. Not even angels could distract her. Okay, where did I stop here? Did I read 13? Okay. When she said these things, she turned backward and beheld Jesus standing there. Yet she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing that he was the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you had carried him, circle that, him away, Tell me where you have laid him, circle him, and I will take him, circle him, away. Three hymns right there. You got to think about it, y'all. You think this random dude who's the gardener shows up to take care of plants, all right? And you're looking for this person, and it's just, it doesn't make sense that Mary would respond this way. He's like, let me tell you about this person. His name is Jesus. He taught a lot of awesome things. He got crucified three days ago. It looks like he's resurrected. Do, do you know Jesus, this person? But it just says, him, him, him. Him, him, him. Because in Mary's universe, there was only one him. She was simplified down to this one marvelous person. Utterly consumed with the universal him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, there's the first kiss. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Jesus said to her, Mary, boom. He laid a kiss on her. When the Lord says our name, he kisses us. We need the Lord to say our name a lot. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I send to my father and your father and my God and your God. Verse 17, that's the second kiss. Because it is a personal speaking from the Lord to Mary. When the Lord says our name, when he speaks something personal to us, he's just kissing us. And if you think about your experience, when the Lord says your name and when he speaks something personal to you from the word, something happens within. Our heart gets tenderized. Our heart gets all warm. Feels good in there. Why? Because the Lord just laid a kiss on us. Because we had a personal interaction with him. Not general, but personal, intimate, and affectionate. Verse 18, Mary the Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. There's Mary being satisfied. She wasn't satisfied until she got the kisses. Verse 18, she's satisfied. Okay, we're going to move on to the next point. <clears throat> It says, pursuing Christ by being drawn by him. By being drawn by him. Say, Lord, draw me. Lord, draw me. Say, Lord, draw me. Lord, draw me. Say, Jesus, draw me. Jesus, draw me. Say, Jesus, draw me right now. Jesus, draw me right now. Song of Songs 1-4. Draw me, we will run after thee. These, this is another one of those verses that we have to put in our repertoire to pray. A lot. Because remember, Romans 3.11, there's none who seeks God. So we have to pray, Lord Jesus, draw me, because our pursuing of Christ starts with him drawing us. Draw me, we will run after thee. And then 2 Timothy 
says, but flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those. You got to underline with those. <clears throat> and sorry, you got to underline pursue as well. Pursue with those who called on the Lord out of a pure heart. I want to read something to you. This is from a prominent, prominent Christian author. <clears throat> this is what he says about being drawn by the Lord. It says, many people often say that they are not hungry. They are not hungry because there is no drawing power. The Song of Songs says, draw me and we will run after thee. How does the Lord draw men today? He draws men through other men. Every time I have gained some spiritual experience, I have gained it because others have gained it already, and I longed after it. Not because I suddenly discovered something in my reading of the word or in prayer. Others have experienced the overcoming life, and I desire the same. Others have received the outpouring of the Spirit, and I desire the same. I receive my experience of the overcoming life and the outpouring of the Spirit through others' experiences. When others draw me, I run after the Lord. So we underlined with those. The with those there is God's divine provision to us to not only be supported in pursuing Christ, but actually the Christ in them will cause us to be drawn to the Lord. You have to look to your left, look to your right. The Christ in that person is God's divine provision to you to be drawn to Christ, to pursue Christ. So treasure the brothers and sisters, okay? Treasure the Christ in them. The Christ in them will draw you to pursue after Christ. That's why we really need each other. Okay, moving on to the next point. Are y'all ready for this one? I want everybody to stand up real quick. I know y'all been sitting for a little bit, all right? Just shake the shoulders out, okay? We're, we're getting towards the home stretch, all right? You know? There we go, there we go. Okay, y'all can sit down. There we go, get a little bit of blood flow there. So I need y'all to stay dialed in on me, okay? Stay dialed in. Y'all are doing an excellent job. Can we say praise the Lord? Praise the Lord! Can we say, Lord Jesus, I love you? Good, good. Okay, this is probably where the most, most ump is in the message, right here. So I need you to dial in, please, and exercise your spirit, all right? Right here, okay? Right here. All right, pursuing Christ by counting all things lost on account of the excellent knowledge of Christ. I'm going to read these verses. This is Paul again, Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision the ones who serve by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You have to underline no confidence in the flesh. <clears throat> Though I myself have something to be confident of in the flesh as well. Underline confident of in the flesh. If any other man thinks that he has confidence in the flesh, I more. Underline confidence in the flesh. So Paul brings up the flesh here three times. <clears throat> and what is the flesh? You know, we know it's a negative term in the Bible, but when we think of the flesh, what do we usually think of? Usually we think of, you know, the things that are related to the flesh, which is greed, lying, lust, jealousy, hatred, drunkenness, a bunch of things like that, a bunch of bad things, Right? think of the flesh, we think of, oh, that's, the flesh is all these bad things that I've done and see other people do. But look what kind of flesh Paul brings up here, all right? He starts talking about who he is, what he has, where he's from, and what he's accomplished. Check this out, okay? He begins elaborating on what he means by the flesh. <clears throat> Circumcised the eighth day of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, persecuting the church. As to the righteousness, which is in the law, become blameless. Does that sound bad to you? Sounds pretty good. We may say persecuting the church is bad, but if you were a Jew and looking at somebody with that characteristic, you would be like, uh, they're at the top. 
They're persecuting church. They're persecuting this entity that we all hate. So it was actually something very positive in the eyes of the Jews. Circumcised the eighth day of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Sum it up. The flesh there, according to Paul, that's who he is and where he's from. Who he is and where he's from. Have you ever considered who you are and where you're from as a part of the flesh? Paul did. As to zeal, persecuting the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, become blameless. This is what Paul is good at and what he's accomplished. Have you ever considered what you're good at, what you accomplished as related to the flesh? I don't know if we have this on our radar, but Paul did. And he had no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the positive things of this flesh. But then Paul says, What things were gains to me, these I have counted as loss on account of Christ. But moreover, I also count all things to be lost on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, on account of whom I had suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse that I may gain Christ. Going back to verse 7, what things were gains to me. You got to circle gains. That's what he's talking about in the previous verses. Those were gains to him. This matter of him being of the race of Israel, a Hebrew, Hebrews, a Pharisee, persecuting the church, righteousness. These were gains to Paul. He says, I have counted as loss on account of Christ. So you got to underline counted and circle loss on account of Christ, because of Christ. But moreover, oh, there's something more. I also count, you've got to underline count again. There it is again. Count all things to be loss. You've got to circle loss. On account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. We're going to dive into this phrase a little bit right now. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's interesting, Paul didn't say here, the excellency of Christ, Jesus my Lord. He said the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me ask you a question. Is Christ excellent? There's no doubt about it, he's excellent. He's the most excellent one. But Paul didn't say that. He said the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me ask you another question. Did Paul know Jesus before his conversion? I heard mixes of yeses and noes. What is it? Alan's giving me a no right here. What are you saying? Will gave me a yes. Okay. He did. He did know Jesus. All right? But <clears throat> let me get this here. I'm going to need a little example here real quick. But in what way did he know Jesus? Let me tell you how Paul knew Jesus. He knew Jesus prior to his conversion as an illegitimate son. Remember, Jesus Christ was born out of wedlock. Remember? Even, even the Pharisees told him about being born in fornication. Illegitimate son. Okay, what next? Paul, Saul at this time, knew the Lord as just living in a carpenter's home, low class and poor. Carpentry back in those days was not a lucrative job. Just some poor kid. Where's this poor kid from? He's from the armpit of that region, Nazareth. From the armpit of that region. Illegitimate, poor, and from the armpit. What else did Paul know, Saul know, about the Lord? He knew that this man is a lunatic. A lunatic. He was crazy because he claimed to be the son of God. Like what? People don't do that. He's a lunatic. Not only that, he's a rebel. He's a rebel of the Jewish religion, 
He's breaking the Sabbath all the time and rebuking the Pharisees all the time. He's a rebel of the Jewish religion. So Paul, Saul's view of Christ, prior to his conversion, was just like our view of this rock right here. I know it's probably hard to see that back there. There's nothing special about this rock. It's like kind of tan. It's got some smudge marks on it. It's got some dents in it. Nothing special, right? Is there anything special about this that y'all can see back there? Mike, nothing, right? This is Saul's view, Paul's view of Christ prior to his conversion. Just something to be kicked along the road. Good for nothing. But one day in Acts chapter 9, Paul's on the road to Damascus with letters giving him the authority to bind the believers in Damascus and take them back to, to Jerusalem to be prosecuted and probably killed. On the road to Damascus, Paul's traveling, and then all of a sudden, a light flashed around him brighter than the sun. And Paul asks a question. Or no, Jesus talks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. This instance was the beginning of Paul obtaining the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Beginning from that day, Paul went from this concerning his seeing of the Lord to that. There's something beautiful about this person. There's something excellent about this person. There's something precious about this person. On that day, Paul had his first accumulation of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord, because he got a personal revelation of Christ. Knowledge in this verse, brothers and sisters, is not something, not facts pumped into your brain about Christ. It's not like you're in class in a lecture. It's like you're getting facts about a certain subject. We're talking about a revelation. We're talking about a removing of the veils. We're talking about light shining. We're talking about the eyes of our heart being opened and enlightened to see the excellency of this person. That's why Paul used the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, because he's emphasizing, I found out, I saw something personal of the Lord's excellency. And when I got a revelation of the excellency of this person, I now have the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. When you have the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, you cannot be the same after that. You can be the same after getting objective facts in your brain about Christ. But when we have an experience of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, something happens in here. Light blazes in. Life is imparted. Light shines, and we see something of the excellency of Christ, and now we have the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And the thing is that the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, it caused Paul to do something radical, absolutely radical, because this excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord, it caused Paul to do some math. What? Math? Raise your hand if you don't like math. I'm an engineer, so I like it. But the reality of the situation is we all need to be math persons when it comes to this passage right here. How do we see that Paul did math? He counted. <laughs> counted. Look at these verses. Verse 7, counted. Verse 8, I also count. Again, and count. The excellent not, I'm counting, I'm counting, I'm counting. I want to do a little exercise here. Count how many letters are in this outline point by counting all things, etc., etc. Count how many letters are in that. I really want you to do it. I'm serious. Let's do the exercise. 
Count how many letters are in that outline point by counting all things lost on account of etc., etc. How many letters are there? I'm hearing some numbers here. What do we got? 63. That's how many letters are there. Why did I have you do that exercise? Because I don't want you to take the word counting for granted. Paul counted. Were you not focused on those letters? I saw the brothers here. They were, they were putting their pen on each letter. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Concentration. Consideration. Focus. Counting is not something passive. You can't be passive and count. you got to concentrate and focus and consider what you're counting. It's extremely active. That's why I wanted you to do that exercise. How many, how many counted again to make sure they got the right number? Did anybody do that? I think I saw one hand right here. I did it last night to make sure I got it right. You know, even a reconsideration. What am I trying to get at? Is that the excellency of the knowledge of Christ that Paul had, oh, it caused him to count. It caused him to have a deliberate consideration. It caused him to have a, a calculated decision concerning all the things of his life. Paul said he counted all things. All means all, right? Is anything exempt from all? It's not. So here Paul is. He's going through all the things of his life. He counts them. Counts them. This, 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 this. And then he's, he's holding them up one by one and comparing him to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord. One by one by one by one by one by one by one. Comparing, comparing, comparing. And then in that comparison, he makes an evaluation. He says, this thing, it doesn't compare to the excellency of my knowledge of Christ. What do I do? Refuse. I toss it in the lost pile. Let me count again this thing. I'm comparing to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Loss. Let's put it in the lost pile. Lost pile is getting bigger because he counts all things as loss on behalf of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Because of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, all these things didn't compare to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, and Paul considers them as a loss. Loss, loss, lost pile, lost pile. Paul's lost pile is getting bigger and bigger. Bigger and bigger. And then here we come. Paul, I'm just looking at what you're doing here. You've done a lot of counting. You've done a lot of careful calculating about all the things in your life. And I see this huge pile over here. And, and, I, and I'm looking in this pile, and, and I see here financial security. That's in the lost pile. I I'm also see here your education. That's in the lost pile. Let me dig a little bit more. Paul, wait a minute. This, these are your relationships. It's in, it's in your lost pile? Let me look through again. Oh, what is this? Your intellect? Your accomplishment? It's in your lost pile? You consider those as loss? And here's Paul. Walks over. And he says, not only are these loss, but this pile is actually a big pile of refuse. It's not precious losses. It's not valuable losses. It's a loss of refuse. A loss of dregs. A loss of dung. A loss of dog food. All this big pile. It's just dog food. Why? Because when I compare all these things to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, they're nothing. They're nothing. This shows us how excellent Paul's knowledge of Christ was. So you see in verse 8, <clears throat> at the end, on account of whom I had suffered the loss of all things, there's the loss pile, and count them as refuse. As refuse. Dregs, dung, dog food. That I may gain Christ. Let's say that. That I may gain Christ. 
So not only did these things, when Paul compared them to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, not only did he consider them as a loss, but consider them as dog food because these things, and I listed off some pretty good things, right? These things, if held on to, can prevent us from gaining this most excellent one. And if anything prevents us from gaining Christ, that thing is refuse. Not against those things. But the thing is, when they're held onto tightly, when they're grasped onto, they fill up space in our heart where Christ wants to get in. But if we have the careful calculation, the deliberate consideration of counting and comparing with the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, at the end of the day, there's no comparison. And we have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in who we are, what we have, our accomplishments, where we're from. Christ is better. And we hold those things up to Christ. We realize, Lord, nothing compares to you. I'm not going to hold on to these things. I'm going to open to you. I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to love you. And Lord, I'm going to allow you to do whatever you want within me. So that I may gain Christ. Okay, last point here. And this will be really quick. We pursue Christ by laying hold of Christ, forgetting and stretching. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained or am already perfected, but I pursue, if even I may lay hold of that, for which I also have been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not account of myself to have laid hold. You have to underline that. But one thing I do, Forgetting, you've got to underline forgetting. Forgetting the things which are behind and stretching, underline stretching, forward to the things which are before. I pursue toward the goal for the prize to which God in Christ Jesus has called me upward. Forgetting. That's the good and the bad. The good and the bad. We have to forget. A lot of times, our experiences of Christ in the past can prevent us from future experiences of Christ. So even something extremely precious is our experience of Christ. We have to forget that. And then we have to stretch forward to the Christ which is before. So the experiences there that we need to forget are the good and the bad. Why? Why do we stretch forward to the things that are before? Because in Joshua 13.1, this is what we have. Now Joshua was old and advanced in age, and Jehovah said to him, You are old and advanced in age, and very much, very much of the land remains to be possessed. And the land here is a symbol of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, wherever we're at in our walk with the Lord, very much of Christ remains to be possessed. And this was Paul's attitude as well in Philippians 3. Forgetting and stretching. Now, I want to end with this. We had three persons that we looked at as patterns of pursuing persons in this outline. We had Peter, we had Mary, and we had Paul. And I end here because I want everybody to be encouraged in this room. I don't want you to be down on where you think your level and intensity of your pursuing is. Okay? We all have to start somewhere. Actually, we know where we all start. We all start at zero because no man seeks out God. But I I want us to consider Peter, because that's who we looked at first. How did he start? He was a Galilean fisherman. We just saw, he said, depart from me, Lord. You see in the word that he has to put his foot in his mouth so many times because he's saying the wrong thing. He thinks he's better than the other brothers. He's arrogant and prideful and individualistic. He denies the Lord three times. After he just said, I'll never deny you, Lord, and I'll even, deny, I'll even die with you. That's Peter. But we saw that Peter was a person who loved the Lord to the uttermost when it was all said and done. But that's how he started. Okay? What about Mary? Mary the Magdalene. How did she start? She was possessed by seven demons. That was her beginning. And the Lord casted out the demons, and she became, she became a crazy lover of Christ. And then Paul, we saw a little bit of Paul's background. Persecutor, 
blasphemer, insulting person, killing Christians. That's how he started. And we saw what he did. He had that big pile of losses in the corner and said it's refuse compared to Christ. So these were the three persons that we looked at in this message as patterns. That's how they started. The Lord, if he can do such a work in them to make them pursuing persons, he can do such a work in us to make us pursuing persons of Christ to gain him. So thank the Lord for this time, and I'll stop here.